the plea of having been at the time of the commission of an act elsewhere than at the place of the commission. This is the Merriam-Webster Dictionary definition of the word alibi. The word alibi originated in the late 17th century in Latin. The original Latin word simply meant in another place. In any criminal investigation, the alibi of a suspect should be a cornerstone of the case. Stated simply, if the suspect has been confirmed to be in a different location than at the crime scene at the time the crime was committed, he or she could not have committed said crime. It's a simple concept, but one far more convoluted than one might like to believe. Several months ago on this very program, I interviewed Michael Ware. Mike is the executive director of the Innocence Project of Texas. He's been practicing law for over 30 years, and back in October, he told our listeners that in 30 years of practice, he has never once seen an alibi sway a jury's verdict. I was shocked to hear this from Mike. Surely, if an investigator, a prosecutor, or most certainly a juror was presented with compelling evidence or testimony that a suspect was, as Webster puts it, elsewhere, during the commission of a crime, they would be cleared of all charges. It only makes sense. If they weren't there, they could not have committed the crime. The reality of the situation is that Mike Ware was right. In today's society, we have far more resources to figure out where we were at any given time. We have GPS on our phones and cars, and we have social media posts, timestamp text messages, and we take exponentially more pictures today than we did, say, 25 years ago. We capture everything on our smartphones now, and we are a society obsessed with sharing every intimate, tiny detail of our lives with the entire world. In 1993, security cameras were an expensive luxury item that most small businesses couldn't afford. And the cameras that did exist recorded onto tapes that were expensive and had limited storage capacities. Most system administrators were keen to reuse their tapes each day recording over the previous day's activities. In direct contrast, in 2018, cameras are everywhere. Anyone can purchase a high-definition security camera for about the same cost as filling up a pickup truck with gas. The cameras are inexpensive, wireless, and store captured videos in a vast digital cloud, easily accessed from any location at any time. We have cameras on our doorbells, in our homes, at our places of business, and the police departments even have cameras at busy intersections. We now live in a world where it's nothing to carry over a terabyte of digitally stored media in your pocket. But in 1993, there were no such luxuries. In order to account for one's time and movements, a person was limited to their own memory and the memories of those they spent their time with. The reason that Mike Ware has never seen an alibi work, as he puts it, is because the people that we spend our time with are typically those who are close to us. Family members and friends, and the mere suggestion of a personal relationship can call any alibi witness's statements into question. This phenomena is true in many criminal cases throughout history. The alibi means nothing and can always be challenged. Or at least they could in the pre-digital and GPS age of the early 1990s. Also evident in every criminal case that I have personally investigated is obvious police bias. Time after time, I've seen police quickly clear unpopular suspects due to a confirmed alibi, whereas their prime suspect's alibis will be ignored and explained away by the suggestion that witnesses are lying to protect those that are close to them. Before we begin today's look into Damien Eccles' alibi on the evening of May 5, 1993, let's first put ourselves in his shoes. 
If you're listening to this episode on the day it drops, then today is Sunday. Damien Eccles gave his first account of his movements on the night of the murders on Sunday, May the 9th. Without looking at your phone or your computer, I want you to hit pause here and try to remember your exact movements from this past Wednesday. Only four days have passed. What did you do on Wednesday evening? What were the exact times of your movements? And who were you with? Now take a piece of paper and a pen and write down your account of your day. And if you really want to put your memory to the test, call the people that you think were with you and ask them about the events of the day. See if they remember everything in the same way that you do. Do they remember particular events occurring at the same times that you do? This exercise is much easier for us who have particular routines for certain days. For example, I know that on Wednesday nights, my wife takes my stepdaughter Bella to volleyball practice. She always leaves the house at about 4.15 p.m. and returns around 8.30 p.m. On these evenings, I typically work late. I make dinner and eat with our three boys around 5 o'clock, then work on their homework with them, and then after homework, all three of them typically settle into TV or video games once the work is done. And I then head back out to my office to do some research. I can confidently say that this was likely what I was doing this past Wednesday. What I can't tell you is what we had for dinner, who had homework, or even what I was researching that night. I know that after Becky got home, I would have tucked my youngest Parker into bed, packed the kids' lunches, and then retired to the bedroom with her to watch some TV. I can't tell you what we watched because there are no shows that we watched together on Wednesday nights. We would have watched something on the DVR or perhaps binged on some Netflix. As you can see, my alibi sounds strong. However, any able detective could shoot holes into it. Bob, why don't you remember what you ate for dinner? Was anyone out in your office with you during that hour and a half? Why can't you remember what you watched on TV? Who can confirm that you were actually home? Your family? But wouldn't they lie for you? What I've seen time and time again happen next is a suspect will try to do a better job of filling in the details to appease the detectives. They don't want to leave any questions unanswered. So for me, I would think really hard. I think I made chicken for dinner, and I think we watched Broadchurch. But then the police would ask Becky what we watched that night. Maybe she says we watched The Good Doctor on the DVR. The kids say that they think we had tacos that night, and now I've lied about my alibi. So then I go and I talk to Becky and the kids, and I tell them it's really important that they remember that we had chicken for dinner and we watched Broadchurch. Then the detectives talk to them again. Did Bob tell you what to say to us? Did he ask you to lie for him? Mr. Ruff, we have a warrant for your arrest. You can see how easily an alibi could be twisted into a lie. And that's an alibi coming from a 39-year-old married father of four with a routine. Now imagine that you're an 18-year-old high school dropout that basically does the exact same thing every day. The only memory marker you have is that your buddy had to mow his uncle's lawn on Wednesday, and you went with him. In today's episode, we're going to begin our evaluation of Damien Eccles' alibi. This will be a two-part series. This week, we will begin with the evolution of Damien's alibi as he related to police, followed by any corroborating statements. Next week, we will address witness statements that conflict with his recollection of his whereabouts. But for now, let's begin with Damien's own statements to investigators. 
Damien was first questioned on this case on Friday, May the 7th, by James Sudbury and Steve Jones. This was the day after the bodies of Stevie, Michael, and Christopher were found, two days after the murders. The officers went to Damien's house on a hunch about the murders being connected to a satanic cult. In the report on this interview, the officers either didn't ask Damien about his whereabouts on the night of the murders, or if they did, they didn't document it. As we move through the evolution of Damien's alibi, I do find it necessary to point out that Damien is one of the few people interviewed about his whereabouts who didn't have his interview recorded. This is a critical detail to understand because all of his statements are presented secondhand, meaning all we have is the officer's interpretation about what was said. Now, that's not to say that the officers are lying or intentionally bending the truth. It's also not to say that their notes aren't completely accurate. The point is that we have no way of knowing exactly what Damien said. For example, an officer could ask him, who came to pick you up? Damien answers, my parents. The officer asks, who was driving? Damien could respond, my dad. When the interviewing officer then writes a summary report on the interview days later, he would likely simply write, picked up by father. And that's all we would ever see. The details of exactly how many people and who was in the car likely wouldn't seem significant at that point. Now again, that's not to say that this is what happened. It's just necessary to point out that it can and does happen. And typically when it does, it has nothing to do with any intentional misconduct. The report is simply a summary of the highlights of an interview, which is why it's always better to record everything. I said all that to say this. As I summarize Damien's statements about his alibi, you'll notice a bit of an evolution. Unfortunately, since the interviews weren't recorded, we don't necessarily know how much of his account actually changed, as opposed to how much of the differences were simply due to the thoroughness of the questions and report writing. As one more quick example, on May 9th, the interview we're about to discuss, Damien, Dominie, and Jason are all talking to the officers at the same time. If the officer asked, were all three of you together that day, they would of course all say, yes, we all went and did this. Then in a later interview, the question may be different, who all went, rather than were all three of you there? And then we would find out that there's an addition of a fourth person, someone named Ken. But we'll get to all of that as we move along. Just be aware that we don't know what questions were asked or the exact verbiage of the answers. According to the official record, Damien was first asked about his whereabouts on Wednesday, May 5th, the night of the murders, on Sunday, May the 9th, four days after the fact. In regards to his alibi, Shane Griffin wrote in his notes, Father stated Damien was home at 6 p.m. through the rest of the night. In Bill Durham's report, he notes that Jason, Damien, and Dominie all said that they had gone to Jason's uncle's house and that Jason had mowed the lawn. None of them were sure on the time. And it says that Damien's father picked up all three at the laundromat of Missouri and dropped Jason and Dominie off at their homes. Then in the questionnaire, it should be noted that Jason Baldwin said that he was home at 6.30 p.m. Then the next day, Damien is interviewed again, this time at the police station by Detective Brian Ridge. This excerpt is from Ridge's report on the interview. Quote, Damien stated that he went to Randy and Susan Sanders' home with his dad, mother, and sister on Wednesday from 3 until about 5. Then he stated that he went home and got on the telephone with a Holly George and talked to her until about 11 or 11.30. 
Now, remember that Damien was in the station for quite a while that day. He gave blood and hair samples. He took a polygraph test. At the end of the day, Ridge wrote a final report summarizing the events. This is from Ridge's report, quote, Damien stated that on Wednesday, he was with Jason Baldwin and Dominique Tier and that they had gone to Jason's uncle's house on Center Street in West Memphis. He could not give a specific address, but said that he was near Alexander's laundromat, where he stated that he called his mother to pick him up. He stated that his mother picked him up along with Dominique Tier and took Dominique home. It goes on to say, stated that after his mother dropped Dominique off, that he, along with his mother, sister, and father, had gone to the residence of Susan Sanders and visited for a while. He stated that he was at their residence about 3 to 5 on that date. And after leaving the residence, he went home where he stated that he got on the phone with a Holly George. Stated that he got off the phone with Holly after talking for a long time at about 11.30 that night. End quote. That's everything we have on Damien's statements about his alibi during the investigation. He was asked on Sunday by both Durham and Shane Griffin. This was in the front yard of Jason Baldwin's home. Damien, Jason, and Dominie were all being questioned at the same time. Here, Durham notes that they all went to Jason's uncle's house, where Jason mowed the lawn. Damien called his father to pick them up, and his dad dropped Dominie and Jason off at the trailer park, and they went home. Now, the next day, Damien is interviewed by Brian Ridge at the police station, and Ridge's report is quite a bit more detailed. Damien's account to Ridge about his whereabouts was basically the same as the day before, with just a few changes. In this report, Ridge writes that Damien says that his mother picked him up, not his father. Also, in this report, only Dominie was given a ride back to Lakeshore. Jason was left at his uncle's to finish mowing. Also, in this report, we had the addition of a trip to family friend Susan Sanders' house. No details are written about the events of the visit, just that the visit occurred at, quote, about 3 to 5 p.m. And lastly, we get some further details about what Damien is doing with his evening with the addition of a phone call to Holly George after he arrived home, lasting until around 11 or 11.30. At this point, the nuts and bolts of Damien's alibi are as follows. According to the police reports, Damien says that he went to Jason's house. He, Jason, and Dominie walked to Jason's uncle's house where Jason mowed the lawn. Damien called his parents to be picked up at the laundromat. His parents gave Dominie a ride home. And he went to the Sanders house with his family and then went home where he talked on the phone with a girl named Holly George. Now, let's look into the corroborating statements. If I was attempting to corroborate Damien's alibi, I would want to talk to Damien's family, the Sanders, Dominie's family, and Jason Baldwin's uncle. And as luck would have it, all of these individuals were in fact spoken to by investigators, although some of them weren't questioned until well after Damien and Jason's arrest. Jason's uncle, Hubert Bardush, was one of these people. Detective Brian Ridge interviewed Hubert about a month and a half after the murders on June 14th. Hubert told Ridge that on May 5th, Jason did indeed come to his house and mowed his yard. He doesn't mention anyone else being present, just Jason. He says that Jason arrived to his house around 4.30 and left about 6.30 and said that he was going to Walmart to play video games. Hubert said that he remembers the times because Jeopardy was coming on when he got there and Wheel of Fortune was coming on when he left. Although Uncle Hubert only names Jason as being present on the afternoon, that doesn't really hurt Damien's alibi. Jason mowed the lawn alone, and according to Damien, he had left while Jason was still mowing. So it would stand to reason that Jason's uncle may not have even been aware that he was ever there. All said and done, the basics are this. 
Uncle Hubert does confirm that Jason mowed his lawn on the afternoon of May 5th, the day of the murders. Next, let's see what Damien's family has to say. We'll start with his 16-year-old sister, Michelle. Michelle was never interviewed by police, but was questioned four months later by prosecutor John Fogelman on September 10th. This interview was recorded and the transcripts are available on our website. To summarize, Michelle told Fogelman that around 3.30 or 3.45, she went with her parents to pick up Damien and Dominie at the laundromat. After that, they dropped Dominie off at home and they went to the pharmacy to pick up Damien's medicine. Damien got on the phone when they got home and talked to a Jennifer for about an hour. They ate dinner and then they went to the Sanders house as a family. Only the daughter Jennifer was home. The parents had gone to the Splash Casino with friends. Michelle says that they only stayed for about 30 minutes. She also says that her mom left a note for Mrs. Sanders, that after that they all left and went home. She says that once they got home, Damien got back on the phone. Michelle remembers being mad because she wanted to use the phone and Damien was on it all night. She says that she thinks he got off around 10.30 p.m. and that he was talking to Holly George and then Jennifer again. She also says that he talked to Jason and Domini, and she remembers Damien and Domini getting into an argument. Michelle goes on to say that they basically had the same routine of taking Damien to Domini's house and picking him up again on Tuesday and also on Thursday. Michelle seems to confirm what Damien had told the investigators four months earlier. She and her parents picked Damien and Dominie up at the laundromat, dropped Dominie off at home, then went home, ate dinner, went to the Sanders house, returned home while Damien spent most of the evening on the telephone. Michelle adds some details about the trip to the Sanders house, being that the parents had gone to a casino and only their daughter Jennifer was at home. Also, she says that the time of pickup at the laundromat was around 3.30 or 3.45. Next, let's move on to Damien's mother. Pam Hutchison was actually interviewed by Detective Ridge just a week after Damien was interviewed on May 16th. In her interview with Ridge, she says that around 12.30 that afternoon, she had taken Damien to a doctor's appointment. And then after that, she dropped his prescription off at the pharmacy. And one thing to point out here is that in this first interview, Pam tells Ridge that they didn't pick up that prescription until the next morning. She says that after they dropped off the prescription, she dropped Damien off at Jason's house. She told him then, around 3.45, Damien called for her to pick him up at the laundromat with Domini. She says that Damien had told her that Jason was mowing his uncle's lawn and that he didn't get to spend any time with him because he was mowing. Pam says that she then dropped Domini off at her trailer and took Damien home. She goes on to say that around 6 or 6.30, she and her husband and Damien and his sister Michelle all went over to their friends the Sanders house. She says that Randy and Susan Sanders weren't home because they had went to the Splash Casino with friends. Only the daughter, Jennifer, was there when they stopped by. They sat down and talked to the daughter for a bit and went back home. Once they got home, Damien talked to, quote, a girl that lives in Bartlett. I don't know what her name is. Jennifer is all I know. And he talked to Dominie, end quote. She says that Damien never left the house after they returned from the Sanders and was already in bed when she went to bed around 12. Pam was then interviewed again four months later by Prosecutor Fogelman on September 10th. In that interview, which was recorded and the transcripts again are available, she says that she took Damien to the doctor around 12.30, which is the same as she had said before, and dropped a prescription off at the pharmacy after. Same. But now she says that they picked that prescription up later on that day, around 4.30. She said they dropped Damien off at Dominie's and then picked up Damien and Dominie at the laundromat around 3.45 and that her husband and daughter were in the car with. 
She tells Fogelman that she believes Jason, Damien, Domini, and she believes another young man named Ken had all walked to Jason's uncle's together so Jason could mow the lawn. Jason was mowing, so Damien and Domini walked to the laundromat, used the phone to call her for a ride. She then dropped Domini off at home and then went to the pharmacy to pick up Damien's prescription. They went home, ate supper, around 6.30 went to the Sanders house. Only the daughter Jennifer was home. They stayed visiting with Jennifer for about 30 minutes and then they all went straight back home. She says that Damien was in his bedroom on the phone the rest of the evening. She thinks he talked to Jason, Jennifer, Holly, and Domini. She says that he was home the entire night. Pam's second interview is consistent with her first one with a few exceptions. She now says that she remembers picking Damien's prescription up that afternoon after dropping Domini off. In her earlier statement, she said that she thought they didn't pick the prescription up until the next morning. Also, in this interview, she mentions that she believes there was a fourth teenager traveling with Damien, Jason, and Domini that afternoon. She doesn't mention actually seeing the young man, but mentions that she believes there was a boy named Ken with them that afternoon. After reviewing both of Pam's statements, she also confirms the nuts and bolts of Damien's alibi. She says that he was dropped off at Jason's, he walked to Jason's uncle's house where Jason mowed the lawn, he called her from the laundromat for a ride, the whole family picked up Damien and Domini and dropped Domini off at home. After dinner, the family visited their friends the Sanders. They returned home where Damien spent the rest of the night on the phone. Damien's father, Joe Hutchison, was also interviewed by Fogelman on September 10th. This interview, like the others with Fogelman, is recorded and transcripts are available. Joe told Fogelman that his wife had dropped Damien off at Lakeshore earlier that day. Joe says that he was adapting to his new night shift and was pretty much just sitting home watching TV all day. Around 3.45, Damien called to be picked up at the laundromat. Joe, Pam, and Michelle went to go pick him up. When they got to the laundromat, Damien and Domini were there waiting. They dropped off Domini at home, and then they went back to pick up Damien's prescription at the pharmacy. Then all four of them went home. After they got home, he says that Randy and Susan Sanders called and invited them over, but he didn't answer the phone. Pam did. But Joe says that he relayed that he didn't want to go over that night. But then later after dinner, he decided that they should all go ahead and go. Damien, Michelle, Pam, and himself all got into the car and went over to the Sanders' house. According to him, since he had told them that they weren't coming, the Sanders had made other plans and they weren't home when they got there. They had apparently went to the Splash Casino and only their daughter Jennifer was home. Joe says that he's not positive if Damien was with them, but he thinks that he was. They waited around for a bit and then Pam left a note for Susan and put it in her purse. They left the Sanders house and went home and he believes they arrived at the Sanders house around 7 p.m. He remembers that it was around dusk when they arrived back home. And then he says he remembers the phone ringing several times for Damien. His wife and daughter would answer the phone and tell him it's for him and he'd talk for a while, hang up, and then it would ring again. He says that around 10.30 p.m., he told Pam that there should be no more phone calls because it was too late. Joe here, again, seems to corroborate everything that Damien, Michelle, and Pam have said so far. Damien was at Jason's uncle's, they picked him up at the laundromat, dropped off Domini, went home, then went to the Sanders, then returned home where Damien spent most of the night on the phone. Since all these corroborating statements were taken from Damien's immediate family, let's next move on to the Sanders. We'll start with the daughter Jennifer, since she supposedly was the only one home when Damien and his family supposedly stopped by. Right after the break.
Let's now move on to the statements from non-family members and see if they corroborate Damien's alibi. Jennifer Sanders was interviewed by John Fogelman on September 2nd. In this interview, she tells Fogelman that Damien, Joe, Pam, and Michelle all came over to their house on Wednesday, May the 5th, and her parents weren't home. She knows it was a Wednesday because she was about to watch Beverly Hills 90210. She says they showed up around 7 p.m. and asked if her parents were home. She told them they had gone to the Splash Casino and that she wasn't sure when they'd be back. They stayed for about 20 to 30 minutes while 90210 was on. Jennifer said that her sister Stacy was across the street at her aunt and uncle's house when the Hutchison stopped by. Everything appears to be checking out at this point, so let's now move across the street to see what Jennifer's aunt and sister have to say. We'll begin with Jennifer's cousin, Meredith McKay. Meredith was interviewed by Chief Inspector Gary Gitchell on September the 3rd. She was 19 years old at the time. Meredith lived across the street from the Sanders. Stacy Sanders, her cousin, was at her house. She says that she saw Joe, Pam, and Damien across the street at the Sanders' house on May the 5th, 1993. She says that she told Stacy they were there, and Stacy said that it didn't matter because no one was home. She goes on to say that Stacy might have said that Jennifer was home. She says that Stacy then glanced out the window and then went back to watching TV. She remembers that it was Wednesday night because they were going to watch 90210, and it's on on Wednesdays. She said that 90210 starts at 7 p.m. She thinks the Hutchisons arrived at about 6.30. She said her dad wasn't home from work yet, and he gets off at 6. Meredith has never met Damien or even talked to him. She does, however, have a personal connection to the case. Her father is Officer Ricky McKay of the West Memphis Police Department. Ricky is one of the officers who helped remove the bikes from the bayou on May the 6th. Meredith says that she doesn't remember seeing Michelle that night. And during the interview, Gitchell also talked to Meredith's mom, who also said that she does remember seeing the Hutchisons at the Sanders house on that night, but she couldn't be sure of the time. She does recall, though, that her husband wasn't home from work at the police station yet. So here we have the family of a West Memphis police officer telling Gitchell that they did indeed see Damien and his family across the street at the Sanders house on the night of the murders right around 7 p.m., which is arguably the exact time the boys were being killed miles away in the Blue Beacon Woods. In Meredith's statement, she mentions pointing out to her cousin Stacy Sanders that the Hutchisons were across the street at her house. But I think what we need to know next is does Stacy remember the incident? Prosecuting attorney John Fogelman had the same question when he interviewed her on September 2nd. In the interview with Fogelman, Stacy Sanders says that the Hutchisons went to her house on the first Wednesday in May. She remembers that it was Wednesday because her parents had gone to the Splash Casino with friends and 90210 was on. She was across the street at her cousin's house when she was about to watch the show when her cousin and aunt pointed out that the Hutchisons were at her house. She said that she didn't go across the street because the show was about to start. She says 90210 started at 7 p.m. She remembers seeing Joe, Pam, and Damien. She didn't recall seeing Michelle, but says that they were walking in the door when she looked. She says that they left her house about halfway through the show, and that she figured one of them probably would have come by to get her. But when they didn't, she got up and looked again, just in time to see them leaving. 
She says that she could see that there were four people in the car now, but she couldn't identify if the fourth was Michelle or not. Stacy's statement is right in line with Damien's, his mother's, his sister's, his father's, her sister Jennifer's, and the wife and daughter of West Memphis police officer Ricky McKay. If you're keeping track, that is now seven people who have all stated that at the exact time the murders were occurring, they personally saw Damien at the Sanders house with his family. So what else can we do now to check the credibility of these eyewitnesses? To begin with, we can check to see if 90210 was in fact on TV in West Memphis on May 5, 1993. So I did just that. And according to the West Memphis Evening Times TV Guide on Wednesday, May the 5th, Beverly Hills 90210 aired on Channel 24 at 7 p.m. Next, let's move on to see what Stacy and Jennifer's mother, Susan Sanders, had to say. According to everyone else's statements, Susan wasn't home when the Hutchinson stopped by. However, Pam supposedly left a note for Susan in her purse. Susan was actually one of the earlier interviews in the investigation. She was interviewed on May 17th by Detective George Blair. His report reads as follows, quote, Susan Sanders stated that on 5-5-93, between 6.30 and 7 p.m., she left her residence and went to the Splash Casino in Mississippi. Her daughter, Stacy Sanders, told her that somewhere between 7 p.m. and 7.15 p.m., Damien and his mother showed up at her residence. They stayed about 15 minutes and left. Two days later, Damien's mother told her, Susan Sanders, that the police would come by her house and ask her questions and told her to remember that her and Damien came to visit her on 5-5-93 that evening also told her that Damien didn't kill those boys. He was with her all night. Susan was interviewed again a week later by Detective Gitchell. Gitchell didn't write a report. All we have is a few notes, but they all seemed to confirm exactly what she had said in the previous interview. Susan was then interviewed by prosecuting attorney John Fogelman on September the 2nd. This interview, like the others with Fogelman, was recorded and again, transcripts are available. Susan told Fogelman that on Wednesday, May 5th, she went to the Splash Casino. She said that she left around 6.45 p.m. She had gotten off work at 6 and was rushing to leave when her friends came over to head to the casino. When she left, Jennifer and Stacy were at home, and this was the first time they had went to Splash, which is why she remembered that it was a Wednesday night. They got home late, around 2 or 3 in the morning. She says that the next day, Jennifer told her that Pam, Joe, Damien, and Michelle had stopped by and directed her to a note that Pam had left. She says that Jennifer told her that they had come by right after she and her husband had left. She also said that her daughter Stacy had told her that she saw the Hutchinsons come over from across the street. She is certain that the incident occurred on the 5th of May because her husband receives his disability check on the 3rd of every month. And she remembers that they took $80 each out of the check and went to the casino the Wednesday right after. So Susan here confirms everyone else's statements. She also adds another memory marker to how she knows that the visit occurred on the evening of the murders. She says that she remembers that the first trip that she and her husband had made to the casino was on the Wednesday night, right after her husband received his disability check. And while this interview occurred four months after the fact, let's not forget that Susan was in fact interviewed just 12 days after the murders by Detective Blair. 
Less than two weeks had passed at this point, and the first line of the interview reads as follows, quote, Susan Sanders stated that on 5-5-93, between 6.30 and 7 p.m., she left her residence and went to the Splash Casino in Mississippi, end quote. So at this point, either Damien was in fact at the Sanders house at the exact time that the murders occurred, or all seven of these witnesses, including the wife and daughter of a West Memphis police officer who have never met Damien, are all lying. And, I might add, doing a really good job of it, because everyone seems to have the exact same story. We now have one last stop on the credibility test of all of these witness statements. Susan Sanders told investigators that on the night the Hutchison stopped by with Damien, she and her husband had gone to the casino with her friends Rose and Don DeWitt. So let's see what Rose and Don told Detective Brian Ridge nearly five months after the murders on September 30th. We'll start with Rose. She wrote out the following statement, quote, On or about the first week of May 1993, I went to Splash Casino with my husband, Susan, and Randy Sanders. We left at about 6 p.m. and returned about 2 a.m. I think this occurred on a Wednesday, but I am unsure. Donald used his admission card and listed three guests, accounting for me, Susan, and Randy. End quote. Next, let's move on to Don. On the same date, he wrote out the following statement. On or about the first week of May 1993, I went to Splash Casino with my wife Rose and Susan Sanders with her husband. I am not sure of the date, but I think it was on a Wednesday night. I used my admission card, number 1566, and would have put three guests down as being with me. We left at about 6 p.m. and returned at about 2 a.m. the next morning. So, that seems to just about settle it. But not quite. And that's because months later, just before the trials began, Detective Brian Ridge did his due diligence and contacted the Splash Casino to ask for their gold card registration sheets. His intention was to confirm or deny that the DeWitts had in fact went to the casino on May 5th with the Sanders. And this is where all of the other witness statements are called into question. Was it really May 5th when the Sanders went with the DeWitts to Splash? Don DeWitt went back into the West Memphis Police Department for an interview with Brian Ridge on January 12th. But this time, Ridge had a log sheet from the Splash Casino with him. During the interview, he directs Don's attention to the log entry on May the 5th, 1993. The log from the casino shows the DeWitt signing in with his gold card, but writing that he had two, which is then crossed out, and a one written next to it, guessed with him. This is a problem. Because if DeWitt did indeed have his wife, Randy and Susan Sanders, with him, he should have written that he had three guests. And then to further complicate the issue, on May the 9th, which is a Sunday, he signed in again, this time writing that he had three guests with him. And it's at this point that Don DeWitt concedes to Ridge that according to those log sheets, his trip to the casino with the Sanders must have occurred on Sunday, May the 9th, and not Wednesday, May the 5th. Which would mean that everyone else got the date wrong. After all those interviews, Damien Eccles' alibi for the night and time of the murders just came crumbling down. Or did it? 
This one handwritten log sheet from the casino is certainly indicating that the other eight witnesses all got their days mixed up. But let's look back at the anchors of the other witnesses. Pam, Michelle, Jennifer, Stacy, Meredith, and her mother all claim to know the incident occurred on May the 5th because 90210 was starting at the same time. And we have confirmed that Beverly Hills 90210 did in fact air on that Wednesday night at 7 p.m. Also, we have the fact that Randy Sanders gets his disability check on the third of every month. And Susan recalled in her statement that they went to the casino on the Wednesday just after getting his check. Let's also not forget that Susan was interviewed by police just 12 days after the incident and clearly recalled that she and her husband had went to the casino on Wednesday, May 5th. Is it really possible that she could confuse Wednesday with a Sunday just 12 days later? And as we dig a little deeper, we see that she also says that they went to the casino right after she got off of work which is another indicator that the trip occurred on a weekday. Also, Rose and Don DeWitt both recalled that the trip with the Sanders occurred on a Wednesday. And lo and behold, when Ridge checks the logbook, Don DeWitt did in fact go to the Splash Casino on May 5th, which would be one hell of a coincidence if everyone else is incorrect. You see, the only discrepancy in the story at all is that when he signed in that night, he first wrote a 2 in the guest column, which was crossed out, and a 1 was written in. Although there is a detail that may be of importance, and that's the fact that this was Don's very first time signing in with his brand new card. Could he have simply made a mistake when signing in? Could he have gotten the procedure wrong? Or could the log sheet be incorrect? A closer look at the log does show some discrepancies. In the guest column, there are 22 guests listed, but at the bottom of the page, the log reads, total number of guests, 26. So who are the other four guests that are not listed on the log? To answer that question, let's take a listen to the trial testimony of Mr. Randy Sanders as he recalls his trip to the casino with the DeWitts. Do you, uh, who did you work for last May of 1993? Myself. And uh, uh, what type of work were you involved in? I'm an auctioneer. I own uh, an auction. Okay. Um, do you know a Mr. DeWitt? Yes, sir. Who is that? It was an acquaintance of mine that uh, I met through the auction that owned the uh, secondhand store in West Memphis. Secondhand store in West Memphis? Yes, sir. And, um, How long have you known him? Uh, approximately, say, six months, seven months. Uh, did, did you know him back last May? Yes, sir. That was counting back then. Uh, so from last May, you'd known him about six months? Yeah. Okay. Now, uh, did you ever go anywhere with Mr. DeWitt? Yes, sir. Uh, where did you go with him? We've gone to Splash Casino. And... Uh, how many occasions did you go with him? One time. One time with Mr. DeWitt? Yes. And uh, uh, on that occasion that you went to Splash with Mr. DeWitt, did anybody else go with you? Uh, my wife and his wife, Rose. Um, your wife and his wife, Rose? Yes, sir. And when you went to Splash Casino, do you remember 
uh, the date that you went? No, sir, I don't. Do not I, remember the I, date? I do not remember the date. Uh, do you remember the day of the week that you went? No, sir, I don't. Um, would it have been on a weekend? No, sir. Would not have been on a weekend? No, sir. And tell the jury why you, it would not have been on a weekend? The day that, or the night that we had went to Splash, his store was open, and he's, he's not open on uh, the weekend. I have an auction sale on Sunday, and that takes up all of my day right there. The time I'm through with it, I don't go anywhere. Okay, so um, prior to going to Splash with Mr. DeWitt, uh, were you working with him that day? Yes, sir. He had needed some help moving some things around in the store, and uh, he was going to buy some stoves and off, need help unloading them. So I stuck around the store that day to help him work. Okay. Is this the only time you have gone with Mr. DeWitt to Splash? Yes, yes sir. Have you been to Splash on other occasions? Yes, sir. Um, but this was the only time that you went with Mr. DeWitt? Yes, sir. Okay. Now, um, on this particular time, is there anything about this occasion down at uh, 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 Splash that you re recall? <laughs> the amount of money they lost. The amount of money they lost? <laughs> Yeah. When you say they, uh, who are you referring to? Uh, Mr. DeWitt. Okay. And uh, did you see anybody else that you knew there that evening? Uh, yes, sir. And who was that? It was, I can't even think of her name now. That talent. She's a good outside. Gail Poindexter. Gail Poindexter? Yes, sir. Uh, she go by Sharp now? Yes, sir. She had married. I always knew her as Gail Poindexter, and I still call her that. And you recall seeing her at Splash on that evening? Yes, sir. Uh, where were your children that evening? They was at home. But let's go back to Miss uh, uh, Gail Sharp or Poindexter. Okay. Um, what do you remember about seeing her there that evening? She had won $10,000 on the slot machine. Won a big amount on the slot machine? Yes, sir. Okay. And uh, uh, was she excited about that? Yes, sir. Real excited. Okay. And... Uh, but this was during, was this a weekday rather than a weekend? Yes, sir, it was a weekday. Okay. So Randy at this point is completely unsure of the dates as to when he went to the casino with the DeWitts, and he's not about to guess. But what he does remember is that on that night, he ran into his friend Gail Poindexter, also known now as Gail Sharp, and he remembers it vividly because on that night, Gail won a $10,000 jackpot. Right after Sanders stepped down, the defense called Gail Sharp to the stand. Did she go to the casino on May 5th? Did she see Randy and Susan Sanders there on that day? And did she win a large jackpot that night, as Randy Sanders claimed that she did? Leona Gail Sharp. And uh, uh, have you gone by any other names? Well, a lot of my friends call me, uh, you know, that don't know my marriage name. Like my maiden name, Poindaster, Gail Poindaster. Okay. So, uh, Gail Sharp now, is that correct? Well, now, Gail. Okay. Um, where do you live, Miss Sharp? 1208 Lancaster, and West Memphis, Arkansas. Okay, and how long have you lived there? Oh, probably about 20 years. Okay. <laughs> how, uh, uh, do you know Randy and Susan Sanders? Yes. 
And how long have you known them? I would probably say about 17, about 16 years. You've known of them quite a long time. Okay. And uh, have you had occasion uh, to go to Splash Casino? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> you have to understand why I'm like, you know. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> did, did you go to Splash Casino on May 5th of 1993? Yes, I did. And uh, uh, there at Splash Casino that evening, did you see Randy and Susan Sanders? Sure, I did. They and, walked right up to me. And, uh, Tell us what happened that evening. Uh, I played twenty dollars and won ten thousand. Won ten thousand dollars. And are you sure that that was on May fifth of nineteen ninety three? Yes, I filed it on my taxes. <laughs> I didn't want to, but I did. <laughs> and how did you go back and file that on your taxes? Like a well, Why did you do that? Because you called and asked me <laughs> if I was at Splash. Okay. And, uh, I had it on my W-2s that they fill out Mississippi taxes. Yes. Where they hold out money. Yes. They give you a copy. And you did file that? Uh, I in, sure did. In those winnings. It's been said to me many times by people who support the conviction of Damien Eccles that he had no alibi whatsoever for the night of the murders. And to be honest, I was shocked to find out just how solid his alibi was as I worked through the investigation. His whereabouts at the exact time of the murder was confirmed on the record to investigators by no less than nine people, including the wife and daughter of West Memphis police officer Ricky McKay, who, by the way, had never even met Damien before. Now, Damien's alibi is not without its faults, and we'll be discussing at length the contradictions next week. However, to say that Damien had no alibi is simply factually inaccurate. The strength in his alibi does not come from his own statements. It's obvious from his interviews that that day was of little importance to him. The strength comes in the witnesses who did experience notable events that evening. A first trip to the Splash Casino with friends, the prom episode of Beverly Hills 90210, and a $10,000 jackpot. Truth and Justice is a production of NBI Studios. Michael Bussing is your executive producer, and Shane Yoder is our sound engineer. All music for the show was created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. And Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com designed and created our Season 5 logo. A special thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website. And also a big thank you to our transcription team, Sarah Mueller, Anna Dindorf, Britta Bliss, and Stephanie McConnell. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, 
you can go to patreon.com slash truth and justice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $1 a month. And we also have reward levels on the Patreon page that include access to the behind-the-scenes videos of the taping of our Friday follow-up episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts, Truth and Justice hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. But the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation in the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. And for all of you tweeters, you can follow along on Twitter at truthjusticepod. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on the case. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice.